Good morning, and welcome to Medical Musings with Dr. Joanne here at 88.5 KRFY, Community Radio for North Idaho. I am Dr. Joanne, and I hope you'll enjoy the medical topics I have chosen to present at 8 a.m. the first Monday of every month with a rebroadcast at 8 a.m. on the third Monday. You can listen on the radio at 88.5 K- FM or stream the station and all our shows at krfy.org. You can even hear this show as a podcast also on a, at krfy. Tell your friends as one can stream the station from anywhere in the world or if they have a Wi-Fi connection. The monthly topics will primarily evolve around the medical designations for each month. We'll also include a short what's going around section. And since this is February, we'll be discussing American Heart Month with a cardiologist from Kootenai Heart Clinic, Dr. Ronald Jenkins. And later on in the show, we will also discuss Children's Dental Health Month. As I have a fellow KRFY broadcaster, Don Childress, who will be joining me to discuss dental health. Joining me also is Susie Perez in the station. I'm sure you all know Susie from the KRFY Morning Show. Good morning, Susie. Good morning, Dr. Joanne. Um, I'm very delighted to be helping out, and thank you for bringing this really exciting show. We've been talking about it for a long time, and here we are uh, bringing it to the KRFY airwaves and listeners I wanted to let the listeners know a little bit about you, Dr. Joanne Royan. You have been a longtime volunteer KRFY broadcaster, previously broadcasting during Autos Eclectic Mix, and now you are hosting your own show, Medical Musings with Dr. Joanne, airing the first and third Monday of the month at 8 a.m. So who are you, Dr. Joanne? I'll let the listeners know. You're a retired pediatrician who has lived in Sandpoint since 2002. 10 and previously worked as a pediatric in a pediatric practice in Columbus, Ohio for over 30 years. And then when you moved to Sandpoint, you um, helped at Sandpoint Pediatrics as needed once a month for about 10 years. As a media spokesperson for the Central Ohio Pediatric Society, you also contributed to the print, online media, radio, and television. So you have a little bit of experience here. And you're also a mother of four. So thank you. That's correct, Susie. People always ask, how did you do it? And I was very, very lucky. I had a very supportive husband. There you go. Who also is a broadcaster on KRFY. Uh, We are here to discuss American Heart Month with Dr. Ronald Jenkins. As I told him, almost everyone I know who sees a cardiologist here in Sandpoint loves the care they receive from Dr. Jenkins and his staff. Dr. Jenkins graduated from the University of Utah, although he did grow up in Ohio, uh, near Cleveland, where he also attended medical school in Utah and completed his internal medicine residency. He did cardiology training at both the University of Auckland in New Zealand, we all should have gone with him, and at Harvard University at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. He has had cardiology practices at the University of Utah, the Boulder Medical Center, and since 2005 at Heart Clinics Northwest, now a part of Kootenai Health as Kootenai Heart Clinics. He's not only board certified in internal medicine, cardiovascular disease, also interventional cardiology and nuclear cardiology. We can get so many things done right here in Sandpoint. Although his main office is in Sandpoint, he does travel to Coeur d'Alene weekly to perform planned interventional cardiac procedures. He also directs the Bonner County EMS and the North Idaho Cardiac Rehab. And as we all are here for recreation, whether it be snow skier, water skier, hiker, gardener, he enjoys spending time with his family here too in the beautiful Northwest. Welcome, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. I'm just going to do three little notable anniversaries I found because I thought it was very interesting. This is the 60th anniversary of American Heart Month. In December of 1963, Lyndon Baines Johnson designated the following February as the first American Heart Month. It's also the 60th anniversary of the Surgeon General's report on smoking and health, which certainly plays into cardiology and into dental health and the 100th anniversary of the American Heart Association. So the American Heart Association's purpose 
is to increase awareness, information, and improve the health of the population. In the 50s, diet was stressed, along with a decrease in fats. And another com- or great milestone is that in 1967, the first bypass was performed. And now it's the most common heart surgery in the world. Is that true? I believe so. Very cool. Um, but we still have 600,000 cardiac-related deaths. So tell us the things that we really do need to know if we can work on this death rate that still seems to be hanging over our head. Well, most of us are very familiar with the, the cardiovascular risk factors, and, and um, sadly, many of us are in denial. We try to presume that somehow it won't apply to us. But those of us uh, who have a family history of heart disease those of us who have high blood pressure or high cholesterol or smoke or have diabetes or have uh, what I'll say adverse um, lifestyle issues. So overweight, poor diet, um, a lot of sugar in our diet, um, um, inadequate exercise, all those things pile up to, you know, one more fairly major risk factor. And, you know, the concern I have is, Many people have a family history of heart disease, their father, their uncle, their grandfather. And what I hear is, well, he was overweight. Oh, he smoked. And the and, and what that means is that doesn't apply to me. Um, but what I've learned over many years of doing cardiology is that if you have a prominent family history of heart disease, watch out. Uh, that is to say, however, that one can change the course of what's going to happen by looking at the rest of your work, your risk factors and making a difference. Um, I see lots of people who come in with heart attacks, chest pain, they get bypasses, they get stents, whatnot. And as I sometimes say, they decide to play ball. They look at their cholesterol, they look at their blood pressure, I help them with those things. They stop smoking and they watch their diet reasonably, maybe not perfectly. And those people... 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, haven't had a lick of further issues. So it, it, it pays to look hard at um, what is my cholesterol and do I have a family history? And is my blood pressure really perfect enough? And um, if people really look at that carefully, they'll say, hmm, maybe I could do better on some of those things. So so preventing heart disease is, is important. And that's a big part of my everyday visits with my patients Every day is, we may be looking at their valve or something, but also, is your blood pressure okay? Is your cholesterol okay? Did you quit smoking? How's your diet? How's your weight? Things like that. So really, it behooves everyone to find a medical provider, whether they be a nurse practitioner, a PA, or an MD, a DO, whatever. I mean, people need to see a doctor at least, we would say, once a year um, and get be screened for things that are important, such as cholesterol that you wouldn't know just written on your forehead what your cholesterol is so some things have to be tested for it is interesting parents and patients when i was in pediatrics it was both you're mainly talking to the patient or their caregiver so kind of ignore or poo-poo or, or whatever certain other risk factors and oh it's not me i've been feeling great et cetera. Et cetera. Right. so that's something that we always have to promote that at least you should see a medical provider at a certain interval during the year. A cardiologist friend once described the two forms of heart disease as a plumbing problem and an electrical problem. Um, Interesting, the plumbing obviously means it refers to the coronary arteries, uh, veins, veins, um, and then the resultant MI or congestive heart failure. Can you talk a little bit about coronary artery disease itself and, and uh, myocardial infarctions? Sure. So, so again, coronary artery disease uh, is a uh, manifestation of atherosclerosis. So plaque that builds in arteries, and they can build in any of our arteries, but we're specifically talking about the coronary arteries that surround your heart and provide blood flow to your heart uh, and allows your heart to to function at a high level and when those uh, when the plaque in those arteries becomes uh, fairly severe and thinking at least 70 percent narrowed uh, then people often start getting symptoms of chest pressure shortness of breath effort intolerance um, not everybody has the same typical symptoms but 
those are the, the, the general things. And as that artery becomes tighter and tighter, uh, symptoms become more severe. Chest pain may come on just sitting there. And then the, the process of myocardial infarction often stems from plaque rupture. So you can think of a cold sore on your lip and you yank it and it cracks and then, the, and then it wants to seal itself. And so think of that happening on the inside of an artery and the artery uh, releases all these platelet uh, products that um, glom together and can f- f- end up sealing off the artery completely. And then all of a sudden people have severe chest discomfort, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, and hopefully most, most of them realize what's going on and they bring that to the attention of, of 911 or their local hospital or their wives who take them to the hospital <laughs> or whatever and, and get attention. So, so this, this process of atherosclerosis, again, is all started because of um, family history, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, um, and poor lifestyle. And so, so those who uh, attend to those risks can miss out on the joys of having angina and heart attacks and those sorts of things. Well, one question I have then is you have these symptoms, say watch out, make changes, but when it gets really bad, um, what is the intervention? I mean, is it fixable if, if someone has this condition? Yeah. So if they present with exertional chest pressure and it keeps happening and maybe they'll bring it to attention to their family physician who then calls me in a panic saying, can you see this gentleman because, or this woman or whoever who's having symptoms and we try to squeeze them in pretty quickly and sort it out. If their symptoms are severe, we often proceed to uh, uh, cardiac catheterization procedures. If the symptoms are, are questionable and it's not quite clear, sometimes we'll do stress testing to sort out, is this uh, is this an ischemic process? Which meaning, is this a process of a blocked artery? Uh, if it is, if it seems pretty clear and the symptoms are severe, we do these cardiac catheterization procedures, and we and uh, locally we send them to Kootenay Health, is, uh, and and I do these on Thursdays generally. <laughs> so if it's an emergency and it has, it's not a Thursday, one of my partners will will do that. Uh, so that procedure involves um, um, uh, putting dye into the arteries that that surround the heart, the coronary arteries, and we access that either through the wrist, so called radial puncture or through the groin ephemeral puncture, and we uh, take catheters, little plastic cylinder tubes up to the heart, squirt dye in the arteries, and you can visualize on a huge six-foot screen <laughs> the arteries and say, oh, there's, there's the narrowing. And then um, uh, we, we can then go and open the arteries with balloons and stents, and we have lots of new tools and toys to open these arteries, but often we end up putting stents in the arteries, little metal sleeves that go in collapsed uh, across the narrowing, pop them open, use a balloon to stretch them open to the perfect size, and the arteries open nicely. And then if you c- combine that with the right medications, aspirin and a blood thinner, the arteries stay open nicely. So in other words, if you have symptoms, there is a cure. Yeah. And there's ways of taking care of it and having a healthy life, maybe yes. making some lifestyle changes, but moving forward. Yes. Do you do the stint at the same time as that first cath? So, so this when you do a cardiac cath on someone yes. who has symptoms, so, our ER used to call. I'm sure you're familiar with this. Romy rule out MI. So, yes, the emergency rooms become concerned. They refer to you. So, if you do a heart catheterization and you see a severe narrowing and it looks amenable and uh, to stenting, that's often what you go to do right then and there. Uh, some of the p- physicians who do heart catheterizations don't do intervention, so then they'll say, "Oh, I found a blockage." Then I'll Say, who's on call today? Can you come, <laughs> come over and put a stent in? Yeah. Conversely, if you have blockages uh, in all the arteries or in major arteries like the left main tree trunk, so to speak, uh, then, <clears throat> then those are often better handled with bypass surgery. So at that point, you might stop, um, chat with the patient, and then call your favorite heart surgeon <laughs> and say, hey, can you come look at these films? I think this gentleman may be better, better suited with bypass surgery rather than coronary stenting. But either way, um, you want to get the blood flow back to this uh, heart muscle uh, so that people can go about their business and live their lives normally. And if you, if you also make sure you deal with, and by the way, if you don't want to do this again, here are the things you need to do differently. 
And and as I say, the people who play play ball find that that works out really well for them. Yes. Uh, about 20 years ago, the ultra-fast CT came in as a screening mechanism. And people were, you know, $200, you could have all of your arteries done. Is that being done as often now, and how reliable is that? Uh, so it's a, a little bit of a loaded question, um, <laughs> but, but we, can, we can start with, uh, there's a CT calcium score you can do, okay. where mm-hmm. you can, uh, and for around $200, uh, mm-hmm. um, that was it. Uh, Northwest Specialty Hospital actually seems to find a way to do it the cheapest uh, for whatever reason. Uh, so I often send people there for price issues. <laughs> and you can get a CT calcium score, which gives you a sense of how much plaque is in each of your arteries. Okay. I do not do not do that on all my patients. And, and who do I do that for? If somebody has a high cholesterol, they have a family history, and they're just not sure they want to take these medicines because they read some <laughs> something on the internet which makes them believe that they shouldn't take it which is mostly hooey but um uh, and yes there are some people who cannot take cholesterol medicine so-called statins but most can um and um and so sometimes i use that test to show them uh <clears throat> excuse me but you're getting plaque in your arteries and sometimes that gives them the decision okay i guess i better do this now okay. so that's how i sometimes use that okay. Um, when there is an obstruction, the heart has to keep pumping against an obstruction. It's kind of like pushing against a wall. And then the heart muscle itself will get uh, fail. I mean, it gets kind of tired of uh, doing all this work. And that's congestive heart failure. I think a lot of uh, caregivers or uh, people who go around, who go with their friend or their spouse, the chaperone, doesn't always understand what's going on. So what's the easiest way for the public to understand congestive heart failure? Uh, probably attend a lecture for about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll try to do a simple version. So congestive heart failure is not from one thing. So when mm-hmm. people say, oh, my uncle had congestive heart failure, I'm going, okay, why? So uh, so let's quick break it down between systolic failure and diastolic failure. Ooh. So systolic failure is when the heart fails to pump well because it's been damaged and it's weaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be because of several heart attacks. Uh, it may be because a virus attacked the heart. Um, it, it, um, there are a variety of other things, like, for example, heavy alcohol can um, damage the heart and heavy metals and other things like that. So heart dysfunction would be systolic. Uh, uh, heart pump dysfunction would be systolic failure. And Failure to relax, so your heart may squeeze really vigorously, but mm-hmm. can't relax mm-hmm. well, and we call that diastolic heart failure. So, uh, for example, you could have um, uh, leaky valves or blocked valves, and the heart still is trying to squeeze hard, and um, but it can't relax well because of these leaky valves. Uh, f- for example, if your aortic valve is leaking, you pump all this blood out, and it all comes back to you again. The heart may be squeezing crazy vigorously, and yet the lungs are all congested. Yeah. So when you have diastolic heart failure, your lungs are congested, and and if uh, if we understand our lung physiology, and in, in our lung spaces where we're trading oxygen for CO two, well, it's all wet and congested in there. It's hard to do that, and so you get short of breath. So congestive heart failure may be from valvular disease, coronary disease, myocardial disease, pericardial disease, uh, and, and the list is fairly long. Um, you know, common things being common, a lot of people with congestive heart failure have that because of old heart attacks and whatnot. But j- if they just use the word heart failure, you do not know what actually mm-hmm. caused it. And if you want to treat it, you better try to figure out the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. So again, myocardial disease is the heart muscle, and pericardial disease is the covering to the yes. heart? Yes, so there's a lining around the heart mm-hmm. called the pericardium. Right. So once while well, young people can get pericarditis, they can get chest discomfort, often worse with a deep breath or laying back and better leaning forward. Uh, so that's pericarditis. And if that keeps happening on and off for years, then the pericardium can be thickened and then it can cause constriction the around the heart. And then finally, some people can get fluid in the space between the pericardium and the heart and build up so strongly it can cause pericardial tamponade and that becomes an emergency to drain that fluid. So there's well, the heart is an amazing pump, as we've heard many times, and it has certainly lots of different parts. Let's focus a little bit on the electrical uh, part of the rhythm disturbances. It seems like, a, I know, 
a ton of people who've been diagnosed with atrial fib recently. Um, so what's going on in your practice? Do you think it's just that we have more um, or better diagnostic tools? Um, basically, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about rhythm disturbances in general and atrial fib particularly. Yeah, and there's lots of different rhythm disturbances, but atrial fib is a good, a good one to focus on. My day does not go by that I don't deal with atrial fibrillation five to seven times. Um, uh, and I'm going to ask you, what do you think the most common cause of atrial fibrillation is? It's the most common. Because they never taught this to me in medical school. It turns out it's high blood pressure. Yeah, I can see and, that. And why would that be? So think think about it. High blood pressure causes your heart it's to again, be the heart's muscular. Trying to work. The heart's trying to work really hard. So it's muscular and gets thickened. When you lift weights, your muscles get thicker. When your heart lifts weights, it becomes thicker. Mm-hmm. And a thickened muscle does not relax well. And so the atrium, which is dumping blood into the ventricle mm-hmm. over time, every time the heart squeezes, if the ventricle is thickened, it, it struggles to do so. And so the pressure in the atrium goes up and a high pressure in the atrium causes dilation. And dilation of the atrium causes fibrillation again and again and again and again and again. So if you come to me and you have a blood pressure of 135 over 85, and you said, well, someone told me that was kind of borderline, so I never treated it. In 10 years of that, they come in with atrial fibrillation, and they're going, why is this happening? And I go, bingo, that's why it's happening. So mm-hmm. again and again and again and again and again, I see that. So mm-hmm. uh, there are other causes of atrial fibrillation, mind you. So other valve leakages, so for example, a mitral valve that leaks, always, you know, often causes atrial fibrillation. But I don't see that as much as high blood pressure, right? So um, hyperthyroidism can cause um, atrial fibrillation. So there are a variety of causes, and you always have to look for that. But common things being common, high blood pressure is often there. And, and because because our society is getting heavier and bigger and whatnot, we see more high blood pressure, and our diets are still higher in salt than we probably ought to be. So watching diet is important in that regard. And because of that, we have more atrial fibrillation. Uh, fortunately, we have now more tools to handle atrial fibrillation. So a lot of people now who have recurrent atrial fibrillation um, are referred to our electrophysiologists or EP physicians for short. And Kootenai Health has um, three full-time electrophysiology physicians that are excellent and often do these procedures called ablations. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, intu- you can think of that as if you... If you take a, a, a lasso with a brand on it and you brand the pulmonary veins, the, which mm-hmm. is where the blood are coming back from the lungs, uh, with the circle so that you keep the um, electrical activity from going out to the lungs and back, uh, you tend to stop a lot of the um, jumbling of the, of the atrial uh, waves and you have much less atrial fibrillation. And that is becoming more complex than that. But suffice to say, um, uh, atrial fibrillation ablations are now, you know, seventy-five to eighty percent successful. You get a, another try at it, maybe ninety percent successful. And so, a lot of people who've had atrial fibrillation um, uh, messing with the quality of their lives um, can now get back to the normal lives and often get off of blood thinners and beta blockers and other medications that sometimes mess with the quality of their lives. Okay. And it's um, for our listeners, um, atrial fib means that the atrium is pumping not in coordination with the ventricle. Correct. So, and there's also a PVCs, which are just, again, an extra ventricular beat. Right. Um, and, of course, ventral tachy- tachycardia. And uh, with um, atrial fib, they still give verapamil IV and then try to cardiovert, and then the last is the ablation. Well, we used to use verapamil. Okay. Oh, <laughs> that goes back a few years. Dating uh, We have a variety of medications to slow down the uh, uh, rate. So, for example, in uh, and whether you're in an EMS setting or a hospital setting, but the certain medications help slow down the rate to make it more tolerable. So diltiazem is a very common drug that's now being used to slow down uh, the rate of atrial fibrillation. Um, but uh, uh, the variety of other medications, including verapamil and beta blockers and amiodarone, et cetera, can help slow down the, yeah. the rate. Um, we commonly do cardioversions when atrial fibrillation uh, first comes on. 
sometimes they need to be done emergently, but oftentimes they're done uh, electively. So pretty much most every Tuesday or Wednesday morning, I'm at Bonnard General Health doing cardioversions at uh, 7.30 in the morning. That's how my days start often. So tomorrow morning, I'll have another one. Uh, to, um, to convert the rhythm back to normal, those people are generally on a blood thinner for at least three weeks so that no clots uh, are formed in the heart so you don't kick them out somewhere. And uh, that procedure is generally pretty effective, but there's no guarantee it won't come back again someday, but it can allow people to get back to uh, feeling more normal. And for people who feel normal when they're in normal rhythm mm-hmm. and uh, not when they're in fibrillation, often if that keeps happening, we then send them to the electrophysiologist to talk about ablation procedures. Okay, um, I know I'm, I want to be cognizant of your time, but I have one more question. Um, sudden de- death in athletes has received so much attention over the recent decades, from Hank Gathers in 1990, a basketball player for Loy- Loyola Marymount, Reggie Lewis in 1993, to then the sudden collapse, such as Damar Hamlin and Bronny James. Um, and then I noticed an ad for a medicine that was for if you know you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I'm going, what person would know if they have it? And you certainly don't want people asking for medications, which is, of course, the problem now with medications being advertised on TV. But anyway, just a little bit, if you could say or talk about that. And then I also want to know, does Sandpoint have a program where they're really trying to teach personnel, school personnel especially, um, to be familiar and use an AED. Yes, so kind of a loaded question, but I'll, I'll briefly talk about um, sudden death, and then we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll finish with the AED things. So, uh, so sudden death is is has been a problem, and uh, famous athletes kind of bring that to a forefront when people hear about and see somebody collapsing suddenly, and and so there's a variety of cardiovascular issues from rhythm problems to uh, structural problems to coronary problems that can happen to young, otherwise healthy people that you might not know about. So uh, so for many of those people, having a family history of sudden death is key. Um, and having some screening uh, for athletes uh, is also being done much more frequently these days, which is, I think, a good idea. And, uh, and, and certainly, for, for example, EKGs can be very abnormal for people who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy often and can give you the clue that maybe we need to look a little deeper, like do a ultrasound of the heart to see. So if you have somebody who has a family history of sudden death, um, particularly with an abnormal EKG, an ultrasound of the heart can look for structural abnormalities. An EKG can look for electrical abnormalities. And so you'd like to screen and try to identify many of these folks before something disaster happens um, uh, mm-hmm. on the court or whatnot. So always very devastating things when they do happen. That makes the pre-participation athletic physical a little challenging because we always ask, do you know of you know, anyone in your family who's died before age 40? They could have just drowned, but it could still be heart-related. Right. And people aren't always, whether they don't know or they're just not honest. I can't, I could never tell. And then you get the other side of the coin where this mom read this and she needs her kid to have an, you know, an right. ultrasound. So yes. there's both sides of, of the kind of how parents look at um, right. helping their children. <laughs> yeah. And the last switch gear is uh, finally to talk about AEDs, uh, something that's near and dear to me, uh, partly because I'm also EMS medical director for this county. Um, and in the recent years, uh, we have uh, put many AEDs around this uh, county uh, we've gotten grants, for example, um, BNSF Railroad uh, graciously helped us with a grant to put several AEDs around this county, and some uh, you know, local businesses have also stepped up to um, um, have AEDs placed in their business locations as well. There's um, our, our 911 center is now uh, keeping track of where all the AEDs are, and it's on an app where you can actually get an app called PulsePoint, a pulse point AED, and you can see where all the AEDs are in the county. But the idea is is going to be when someone calls nine one one in a panic, uh, I'm um, at KRFY, and I, you know, someone just collapsed, and 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 nine one will say yes, uh, EMS is on the way, and by the way, there's an AED next door or something like that. 
and um, and so so that's important. And then equally, as you suggested, it's important that people know how to use uh, AEDs and to do CPR. Pre-COVID, we actually um, started a, a process of trying to have more and more clinics and community um, sessions to help people learn how to do CPR. Um, um, my wife actually has a coalition on health, which I'm going to invite you to, uh, to, to, to uh, here in Sandpoint of, of a lot of healthcare providers to work on projects like uh, community CPR and AED use. Our EMS uh, local people are committed to teaching um, uh, CPR and AED use in schools. So, in fact, our deputy chief, Alan Brinkmeyer, spends a lot of time with the schools, okay. helping them to um, learn AED use. And, and uh, in fact, we just, the school just placed, uh, or is in the process of placing AEDs in each of the schools, which is a new thing, which is fabulous. It used to be there was one, and now there will be one in each school. And they will be up to date. Uh, EMS will be maintaining the AEDs, uh, and and just so it's clear, the AEDs are devices that people um, who are trained or quickly trained to use that can cause uh, that can allow you to do a defibrillation. Hmm. So when someone has a heart attack and they suddenly collapse, the mechanism of that is often a rhythm called ventricular fibrillation. And if one uh, finds this patient quickly, starts CPR brings an AED over quickly or EMS brings an AED or a defibrillator over quickly and you um, defibrillate the heart, the rhythm comes back to normal and the patient wakes up and says, oh, wow, I feel better. Hmm. Um, so so those are important things. And so you, you have enough AEDs around town. You have enough people who know how to use them. Uh, you have enough people who know how to do CPR. Uh, the probability of saving a few lives each year goes way up. And that's a big yay for the community. Well, good. I'm glad because I know there was a program in Columbus where a cardiologist went to a school, a very well-known school, and said to the principal, do you know how to use an AED? He said, well, there is one out in the hall, but I'd call my nurse to, to use it. <laughs> so again, they're having a program more to, to train the people in the school that it's not that hard to use the AED. So. Exactly. Anyway. Well, thanks, Dr. Jenkins. I know we're taking time out of your office. So I'm, we were so glad that you were able to join us and discuss these very, very important cardiac concerns. Um, if one last thing we'd like to know that we should know. I think the take-home message is those of you who think there's any family history of heart disease, make sure you have talked to your physician about is my cholesterol good enough? Is my blood pressure good enough? Uh, what else can I do to avoid having heart disease in my family? Oh, so, wonderful. Yeah. Again, thank you so much. Okay. Good. Thank you. Okay. Just a quick uh, disease of the week or what's going around. This is respiratory virus season starting in October. So COVID, RSV, and influenza are certainly making people ill across the country. COVID is still the dominant cause for hospitalizations for respiratory illnesses, and we have vaccines for both COVID and influenza and RSV. There were 1,100 influenza deaths since October, including 47 children. So. That's not great news, but good to know we can uh, be aware. I just okay. want to remind our listeners, this is 88.5 KRFY, and you're listening to Medical Musings with Dr. Joanne. Okay. And I also want to point out this is a radio program. So although we're here to discuss medical concerns, we can't make a diagnosis or specific recommendations for you. Always, It's always best to speak with your own medical professional. Okay. So our second theme of the month is Children's Dental Health Month. And that is a project of the American Dental Association to promote good oral hygiene in children and their parents, caregivers, and teachers. It began as a one-day event way back in 1941, uh, both in Cleveland and Akron, Ohio. <laughs> That's 82 years ago. Taken over as a national event by the American Dental Association in 1947 and became the month in 1981. So I have here, my guest today is Donald Childress, DDS. Um, a short introduction, he was... Um, 
Went to college at the University of California, both Riverside and Davis, dental school at UCSF, rotating internship and private practice in Davis, California. Um, What's the flying doctors? Did you do dentistry in Mexican villages? Is that what? We dropped into little Mexican villages unannounced. And as soon as we got there, the mayor or someone, some big shot in the community would come and meet our little plane. We'd explain what we were doing. And we always tried to get in contact with them early, but never was able to do it. So they would go around town with a loudspeaker saying, the dentists are in town. And we'd set up shop in a school usually, lay people down on a bed or a gurney. Their light was the window light. And uh, next morning we'd get up and we'd have a line of patients waiting outside. Wow, that's really uh, that really is bringing dental health to the population that isn't familiar with going to the dentist as some of us are. And, uh, and we'd have to provide all the, all of our own equipment, tools, etc. Okay, um, Don is also a broadcaster here at KRRFY, uh, doing a show on musicals that you can hear the last Sunday of every month. Is that correct? For Sunday, for Sunday showtime. Uh-huh. For Sunday showtime. You retired to Sandpoint in 2000 to facilitate a love of outdoor adventure and fly fishing, but he does play pickleball indoors. <laughs> Almost daily. Okay. So, talking about dental health, there's a lot of emphasis on preventive dentistry. Tell us when a child should go first to the dentist and, again, the routine dental visits. Routine now. Uh, as recommended by the American Dental Association, is to have your child seen by the time he's one year old. Usually they've got a, got a couple of teeth then. Uh, we always like to encourage the mothers to look in the mouth, brush, them, brush their couple of little teeth that they might have, and get them used to having someone in their mouth, someone that they trust. And first, first appointment basically is to introduce the child to, the, to a dental office Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that parents can do beforehand is they can do some role playing. They can pretend that they're the dentist and look in the child's mouth. They can have the child pretend they're the dentist and look in a doll's mouth. <laughs> uh, basically, you just want to get them used to, uh, to looking in the oral cavity. The other thing that's very, very important for a parent to do is, is to uh, have a positive attitude, regardless of what they're thoughts are about going to the dentist. But their bias is. Right, exactly. <laughs> you, you don't want to give them uh, a fear. Children have no fear of a dentist unless they get it from their parent. Mm-hmm. So the first time they sit in a chair, they ride the chair up and down, they look at the instruments, they touch the instruments, you know, they see that nothing's going to hurt them, and look in their mouth. You can give them a mirror and let them watch you look in their mouth, count their teeth, uh, and generally, that would be a first a first visit. Well, yeah, it's interesting to me because it used to be age three, and then it went down to the six months or one year, six months after the first tooth. And I just know that it's more, again, the familiarization with the dentist is really important. As a, we called ourselves, obviously, an excellent pediatric practice, so we were very cognizant of talking about don't put your child to bed with a bottle. Don't, you know, right. if you nurse ad lib, then at least after nursing, perhaps a little sip of water, something so that um, the sweet, anything, milk is sweet, believe it or not. And uh, anything that sits on your teeth can cause decay. And we would see not, not very often in our private practice, but occasionally children that came in with either very rotten teeth or they've already all been capped. And, so, and most yeah. of those have been put to bed with a bottle that's got juice in it or something that the, the child likes. So if the child needs to go to bed with a bottle, it has to be water. It just yeah. has to because that sugar sitting on their teeth all night long is, is devastating. So then um, going on to, so again, that's what I feel was the most important part of t- talking to parents between mm-hmm. the eruption of the first tooth and age three. Some parents go, oh, they're going to fall out anyway. It's like, no, having good oral hygiene really helps uh, prevent other bacterial diseases. Um, Talk a little bit about fluoride. Um, My children, um, I have had multiple cavities 
as a child in the 50s and 60s. My children had none, and fluoride was in their water. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, and- fluoride makes probably, fluoride in the water makes probably between a 50 and 70% reduction of decay in child's mouth all along. Fluoride's got quite a, a contentious copy of, <laughs> of, a, of an item that, that kind of has gotten more political than anything, unfortunately. Uh, but fluoride in the water, what it, the fluoride actually, as the teeth are forming, it actually forms them at a molecular level and makes the, the teeth less resistant to acid. And bacteria eating on food sources... Basically, their waste product is an acid, which then demineralizes or breaks down the, the enamel surface. And fluoride does make it a, a lot less less uh, mm-hmm. tension to do that. But unfortunately, in, in Sandpoint, the city council voted out fluoride about 10 years ago, uh, which is a shame. There's other ways of getting fluoride but not in a way that treats everybody equally. And again, I know that fluorosis, you don't want too much fluoride. So as long as your water department knows what the concentration should be, and if you are using a well, some people think they don't have fluoride at all. Sometimes natural water does have fluoride. And so we used to suggest that people have their water tested and we wouldn't give people fluoride supplements unless we knew it really was right, zero right. fluoride. And that, you know, you can get too much fluoride. There's some uh, communities in Texas that have about 25 parts per million water. What What is uh, recommended is 0.7 milligrams per liter, <laughs> yeah. a maximum in, in the water supply. And to put that in perspective, 7 tenths milligrams per liter is one inch, is the same as one inch in 23 miles. Mm. It's also one minute in a thousand days. <laughs> so we're talking about little, little bits here. It's one cent in $14,000. Know, wow. As a, uh, speaking relatively. So, so, least, yeah. so it's, it's, uh, it's the one way of reaching the most, most of the population. In one place, I read that fluoridation is one of the 10 greatest achievements of the 20th century. Um, So that's really interesting. And again, parents are also, if a child has a runny nose and is irritable, they're usually thinking they're going to get an antibiotic. And the trouble with lots of antibiotics, especially the amoxyl chewables, is that's a lot of sweetness, too. Right. So you can get a lot of sugar in your Teeth and, in your oral cavity. And, uh, and too much fluoride causes a fluorosis, which is a, a modeling of the teeth. Mm-hmm. That they're very strong teeth, but they're not very attractive teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, tetracycline is another one that can stain teeth as they're, as they're coming in. I was surprised to read that in pediatric practices now, it's being suggested that the pediatrician apply fluoride varnish. We never did that, so... That was sort of a new thing. I don't know if you've heard that, you know, too. But um, yeah, that, I didn't. I didn't yeah. know that pediatricians did that. I mean, dentists, <laughs> yeah. dentists, and hygienists have been doing that for forty years. Yeah, we used to have it done, and we used to have it done far away from our home. And our kids, when they had to drive home, got very nauseated <laughs> <laughs> from their uh, topical fluoride varnish. Um, so, what causes cavities, and how can we prevent them? Cavities are caused by bacteria that are in the mouth, and mothers who, who have had a lot of cavities can, trans, uh, can translate this bacteria to their children. It's strep mutans is the bacteria that's mainly the mainly, uh, cause here, and it feeds on, on uh, food stuff that's left in the mouth. It creates an acid. The acid then demineralizes the tooth, which is what eventually will cause a cavity. So the best way of fighting that, of course, is to keep the teeth clean, which is brushing, flossing, uh, and some of the other instruments that are used. But brushing and flossing certainly is, uh, is the main thing. We try to get kids to get our parents to floss their kids' teeth once the, once the teeth are starting to touch. And that's usually when the permanent teeth come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, baby teeth sometimes have quite 
spaces, and you can just brush that away. So, and having them just drink a little water too, as we've rinse, rinse their mouth after they eat. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, other things people talk about. You know, I wake up with bad breath. <laughs> um, what What happens there is uh, saliva is a is basic, and it it actually neutralizes some of the acid. At night, you have less saliva flow, which doesn't neutralize that acid. And also the saliva is a protein, and it breaks down, and, and rotten protein smells. Mm. So, you know, I always encourage my partner to brush your teeth first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, so then... Um Plaque buildup. I've been told that I should go to the dentist more than twice a year because I make more plaque than some people. Is that that's a inherited condition of more calcium or what? You know, it's uh, not everybody does everything the same. Okay. And and yeah, you may you may build up more, which just means you need to clean them <laughs> well. And and flossing, you know, flossing is a lot of probably not a great percentage of my patients actually flossed even though they did right before they come to the dentist of course uh, but but flossing on a daily basis removes that plaque flossing and brushing of course and one of the probably next to fluoride one of the things that I think has done more things for people's mouths is these electric toothbrushes these just have made a tremendous difference in people that that are mediocre brushers and mediocre flossers uh, that gets in and, and removes plaque much better than a hand hand brushing does. But the the electric or right the rechargeable vibrating exactly, exactly. And you can get them an Oral B at the store for six ninety nine, or you can get the Sonic for a hundred dollars. So or a hundred um, or two hundred dollars. Two hundred dollars. <laughs> now they keep. And then. Um, yeah, using a water pick. I tend to um, floss, then water pick, then use paste. And I know that at the dentist, they always, you know, scrape your teeth, then they polish, and then they do the floss. Is there any, uh, you know, rule of well, thumb which should be first? They <laughs> use the, they floss last because there's little, little particles that you want to actually polish the sides of the tooth with, and so, you know, some of their when they polish the teeth, they've got a little silicone uh, grit in it, and this this gets in the gets in between the teeth when you floss last. In in a regular in a regular way, I do it is I floss first and then I brush at night. That's what I do. <laughs> and and I I brush several times a day and I floss once a day. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, and and I think if you if you remove plaque once a day, you're you're doing you're doing yourself a good favor. Okay. Um, one quick thing, they made uh, children's uh, toothpaste with less fluoride, and I always said, if you don't want to buy that, just be sure you would just put a little bit on the brush. The main thing is that the child isn't going to eat fluoridated toothpaste. Right, right. <laughs> and and you don't want to swallow it. And, and they recommend, you know, on a child between one and three, maybe a, the, put fluoride toothpaste on the size of a... Of a uh, big grain of salt and by yeah. three you can use maybe the size of a pea but and then and then after that you can start using more but and kids do swallow things like that so you do have to be careful about yeah. that they're not very good rinse your mouth and spit i guess <laughs> is there anything else we should talk about I, um cavities are one of the most common health problems because they are they can become a bacterial disease that can spread so um, anything else that we should talk about as you're here representing dentistry for uh, the, Children's the, Health the, Month? The main thing that you want to do is you want to get rid of the plaque. And, you know, there's flossing, brushing. Uh, there's also bacteria on your tongue. You want to you want to uh, encourage the kids and yourself to brush your tongue as you, if you brush your teeth also. Interesting. Uh, that, yeah. that will help just reduce the number of bacteria in your mouth. That's very interesting. I have heard that too. Yeah, uh, dry mouth. Some people just have dry mouths, and you need to drink a lot of water. Mouth breathers have 
have dry mouths. Uh, so that's, you know, it's just something to be aware of. Uh, probably the other thing is diet is, you know, try to, try to incorporate raw, raw fruits, vegetables as snacks rather than, than sugar. Because and the sugar, sugary sweet things. The sugary and sweet things sitting on the teeth feed the bacteria. Bacteria produce the acid. The tooth breaks down. Okay. Well, thank you for coming. It's been very interesting to talk about Children's uh, Dental Health Month. Um, Susie, what do you think of um, was the most important uh, bit of information we learned? About dentistry? Well, yeah. I would say... Your dentist is your key early childhood prevention, um, really early. And I like the way that you just get a child used to going to the dentist. First time they just look and count the teeth and look at them with a mirror. That helps alleviate the fear factor of dentistry. <laughs> and again, it's the parental anxiety that sometimes you know is projected to the child. Modern dentistry really should be painless. You know, even the shots, which frighten a lot of people psychologically if it's done well and slowly it's it's uh it's pretty much a painless that's the key right there go slow on those shots for sure um yeah it's important to take care of your teeth they help us chew our food and also i learned that uh, having saliva in your mouth so if you have a dry mouth you might be uh, gestating more bacteria Mm -hmm. so drink lots of water drink lots Mm -hmm. of water and that's good for our for, health For a overall. lot of reasons. Right. For a lot of reasons, exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening this morning to Monthly or Medical Musings with Dr. Joanne. We want to remind you that the rebroadcast is the third Monday. Next mon- month, in March, we'll be t- discussing colon cancer awareness and poison prevention. I might have a little bit of nutrition mixed in with that. Um, I hope you'll tune in to 88.5 KRFY Community Radio for North Idaho. And I want to remind our listeners that this broadcast this morning, all of our KRFY morning shows and Medical Musings with Dr. Joanne now on Mondays, first Monday of the month, will be available on our website at krfy.org as a podcast. And have a good day.